Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Welcome. This is Cheryl Esposito with Leading Conversations, and we're glad to have you all here listening today. We have a special guest with us, John Rennage. He's a futurist and author of Getting to a Better Future, A Matter of Choice. How are you, John? I'm great, Cheryl. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Where are you today? I'm at my home in San Francisco looking out over a very sunny city but a very foggy gate. Uh, <laughs> well, that's just the way it is in San Francisco, yeah, isn't it's it? it's our yeah. natural air conditioning. <laughs> that's right. So you've lived in San Francisco for a long while, haven't you? Yes, I've lived most of my life in San Francisco. I was born across the Bay, so I'm a native oh. to the Bay Area. Oh, you're one of but, those special people. Well, I don't know natives. about that. <laughs> lucky people. I, I'll yeah, go for that. I'm certainly true. lucky. Well, thanks for being with us today. Our conversation today is about the future mm-hmm. and looking at business as part of the future, the new business of business, global consciousness. So, John, I know you have a lot to say about conscious business, and you have spent many, many years um, looking at the importance of business in changing the world, in um, leading the change, essentially. And I'm wondering for you, as you look around today and you look at what businesses are doing around the world, um, what is your sense of the possibilities that exist for business to make a difference? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, my, the premise that I've been working on for at least 25 years is that nothing's going to change unless business changes anyway. So all the, the most grandiose ideas that anybody might have uh, won't make much difference if the most powerful institution in the world doesn't go along with it. Mm. Um, so for many years, I focused just on business and bringing more consciousness or awareness into the business community. And then as my work progressed, starting about eight or ten years ago, I started to see that I couldn't just stay in that that silo of business, that that for change to really happen in the world, it had to be complete system change. And bu- while business is a dominant part of the system, it's not the entire system. And I think a more simple way that I've come to see it is the future's in the hands of people, whether they're business people or politicians or however they want to categorize themselves. But it's going to be people that make it happen. And wherever I look at businesses that are changing or trying to change, it's always at the initiative, almost always at some sole individual. Hmm. Some person sparked the light. Now, there may have been a lot of fumes around for it to explode, but <laughs> somebody had to strike the spark. Interesting. And so, to me, the hope for the future lies in a sufficient number of individuals seeing that there is a possibility of something different and doing something about it, not just talking about it. Hmm. Well, but I'm... it's not going to be business, it's not going to be politics, it's going to be people. It's going to be people. Well, and I'm wondering, you know, how did we get to this place where business is the most powerful entity in the world? Why are we here? Well, business, I, I think business has become so powerful because it, it, the industrial age was brought along with it, the scientific era. And those are two very powerful, economic, money and, and science, money and the ability to develop technologies to do things quicker and faster and make more money are very uh, intoxicating qualities for the human ego. So we have, we have basically become so industrialized that we've compartmentalized the way we think and the way we live as well as the way we work. Um, it's not holistic. It's parts, right. parts to parts. Right. And it's gotten... This, the, the rise in fundamentalism right now, which I see is, and I'm not saying just fundamentalist religion, I mean fundamentalism yeah. in everything, a very adamant, bottom-line way of looking at money, looking at business, looking at medicine, looking at law, hmm. that fundamentalist viewpoint of making everything into a single bottom-line orientation. For instance, in business, the, the market fundamentalism is nothing matters except the bottom line. Right. And that's been... Uh, excerpted from Adam Smith, 
who people have used that free market uh, Adam Smith metaphor for ages. They, they forget that Adam Smith wrote a lot more than just that one phrase. <laughs> they forget that he wrote a book on the, the theory of moral sentiments. Oh, and then they took Milton Friedman's saying back in 1970 and took that literally. So those are their, their kind of sacred Bibles, you might say, hmm. that they keep saying that's the only reason the business should exist is for the benefit of the stockholders. Hmm. And that is killing people, literally, all over the world. Right. right. So that fundamentalist business philosophy uh, is very silo, it's very tunnel vision, and it's, it's making the rich richer, the poor poor more in number and multiple, larger multiples, mm-hmm. and it's basically going to end the world, if we, I mean, end the human race if we don't do something about it. Mm. I don't think the planet's going to be in jeopardy. I think the human being as a, as a species living here may be in jeopardy. Well, I think that's a really important thought, and um, I have heard that someone said to me recently that all of our attention on the environment right now, um, he said to me, you know, it really isn't about saving the earth. This is really about saving the human race. Oh, sure. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. because we don't really have the capacity to go beyond the ego, which the ego is about survival. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a very interesting perspective. And so I'm wondering then, do you agree with that? It sounds like you do. Oh, yeah. yeah? I mean, I, I think last I heard, uh, the scientific estimate is the Earth at least has four and a half billion years to go. Ah. <laughs> so it's going to be around for a while. For a while. But I, don't, I, I wouldn't be that optimistic about human beings right now. Right. Now, obviously, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't think it was entirely possible for human beings to consciously evolve to a, a new level, a new a new level of of consciousness, a new level of functionality in the world. Because I don't, when I talk to groups around the world, and I ask them, "Do you think this is the ultimate evolution of the human being, where we are now? Yeah. Is this the fully evolved human?" and Nobody says yes. Almost all the audience would put it in the adolescent category. Hmm. So will will we make it into adulthood, which is a question I guess a lot of parents ask about their kids sometimes. (laughs) Will we make it? And I I just see this kind of the God standing up there going, I'm not so sure about these guys. (laughs) Whether we're going to make it it or not. Well, so you see in, in in the lifespan of the human being on the planet, you see that the human being is at an adolescent stage. And so what's an example of some of the adolescent behaviors? And if you were going to use that symbolism, what's an example of those behaviors? Well, what I can still remember, even though I'm I'm getting up there, but I can still remember my teenage years, Mm -hmm. all I thought about was Friday night, so very short-term thinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, My circle of uh, friends was very narrow. I didn't have much of an idea about what the rest of the world was doing, or even the rest of the city was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, whatever I wanted, I wanted it right now, so I was very impatient. I needed gratification instantly. Um, I wasn't worried about savings account or long-term thinking at all. I just you know, right. wanted to make sure I had enough money to go out Friday night. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, if you look at it, and I hung out with a certain group, and they, we were in and they were out. Right. And that, and I was enamored by uh, technology. My technology, in my day, was cars. So there's a lot of that, um, those similarities going on in the world right now. And different countries demonstrate adolescence more than other countries. The country right now that seems to be acting most adolescent is is our country, the United States. U.S. Yeah. What? Um, boy, that takes my mind into so many different directions. I, I'm thinking of. What countries do you see or what regions of the world do you see that are beyond this? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, well, there's no, I don't think there's any country that could be held up as a model. Mm. But there are countries that have more of an indigenous ancient wisdom culture mm. that when applied to their modern-day circumstances, seems to work out a little better for them. And the one, the, my favorite example is in 1994, when the South Africans had every reason in the world to have a civil war yes. when they abolished apartheid. Yes. And at least riots, if not civil war. Yeah. And they transcended that place using ancient wisdom of Mbutu, 
which is the philosophy of the ancient Africans, which is my humanity is tied up in your humanity. And that's, I suspect that there's versions of that throughout all the indigenous cultures. But that's certainly not the way that the, quote, modern industrialized armies are acting at all. But they, instead of having bloodshed, they ended up having the Truth and Reconciliation Project, which is a fantastic model. Uh, And and here it is. It's now, what, 13 years old, Mm. been around for 13 years. Mm. And the Western world still insists on using war as an alternative to resolving conflict. Conflict to resolve conflict, you know? Right, and and power, you know, mm-hmm. it, and power corrupts, et cetera, et cetera. We could go on with all the adages. And I'm, but I'm sure I, I am not an expert on on national on national cultures at all. Uh-huh. But that's one example that I I can see that's very plain to see where there is an alternative way of engaging in a problem. Yeah, and we don't seem to have that. The Israelis don't seem to have that. The good most of the world doesn't seem to have that because they buy into that Western model, which is, if you don't agree with us, we'll shoot you. Well, and it, this country was founded on that, right? I True. Mean, if you think about the, well, let's just say the United States was founded on that. The Native American cultures did not live that, um, and the influence of the, um, the culture that created it became the United States is very much about power and, you know, really independent thinking, not collaborative thinking, not, you know, my life depends on your life and mm-hmm. we can do something better together. Yeah. And I I have been noticing in the corporate world, there, there seems to be this appearance of uh, collaboration that is beginning to show up with collaboration with other Organizations and it's show, where it's showing up. Interestingly enough, is in the marketing arena, and I have to tell you, I'm a little suspect of this as whether it's true collaboration or not. But since the economy tends to drive things, um, and it seems like it's a desired, um, it's a behavior that they hope is going to generate more revenue. Um, I wonder about whether you know we can actually use some of this. Use the the profit making vehicle to actually move us toward collaboration in some way. Well, one one of the great myths I think that that pervades corporate America and and therefore corporate global to some extent is that to do things in a sustainable way would cost money and therefore goes against the bottom line. Uh, there's more and more evidence. And I'm not, I don't have it all readily in my hand, but I know people that do. There's more and more evidence that doing business in a more sustainable way actually can be more profitable. Hmm. Now, that's what gets the attention of, right. of the, the people, the, the bean counters in the business world. Right, right. So, so a, the myth this. is that yeah. to collaborate, to do business in a sustaining way, to treat one another holistically, to have humanistic kind of management styles, that those all will somehow affect negatively the bottom line and as more and more people prove that that's not necessarily the case whether it's a business advantage or not who cares the behavior is the same so no, there's gonna... there's growing evidence for it and i think it will be it will change eventually the question is you know when will it change and how much damage will have been done in the meantime there's much more to talk about with john rennish we'll be right back The Bottom Line in Business Talk. Voice America Business. Are you ready to become a global citizen of the world? What would it be like to share your future with people of all ages from around the world who have one major thing in common? A commitment to make a difference with no language, religion, or age barriers. Make a difference in this world. Come to Bali this summer for an experience of a lifetime. Awakening Global Action, a seven-day gathering that will change your world. Call 866-458-2254 or visit our website at www.baliinstitute.org. You are the leaders the world has been waiting for. Call today. Are you looking for a unique perspective on today's market from an experienced economist? 
Well, look no further. Listen to The Economic Contrarian with host Mike Norman every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Business America Radio. Mike and his guests will discuss new trends in the marketplace as well as emerging companies and opportunities. So if you want in-depth analysis from a contrarian point of view, don't miss The Economic Contrarian Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time right here on BusinessAmericaRadio.com. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And we're talking today with John Renage, the author of Getting to the Better Future, A Matter of Conscious Choosing. John, we were speaking about sustainable business and creating a way for business to influence the humanistic level of the world. And I'm wondering about the concept of leadership. Um, You know, there's been so much talk about leaders and how they have influence, and there have, over the years, leaders have had varying levels of power and influence. And right now, there seems to be a bit of cynicism around leaders and whether they are able to tell the truth, whether they are actually have any power in this um, business climate of short-term results. What are your, what's your thinking on this? A bit of cynicism. <laughs> <laughs> You're being charitable. <laughs> I, think, I think we are living in a world of what I call cynicide. Cynicide, <laughs> we are, good word. We are killing ourselves with our cynicism. Yeah, one of the biggest walls of change, uh, wall resistances to change or transformation of doing things in a very different way, is amongst people who would like to do something, or used to, is their cynicism. Hmm. And you know, the old saying says, if you scratch a cynic, you'll find a disillusioned idealist. So there's plenty of people out there that are disillusioned idealists. Hmm. And that cynicism is what is going to be the death of us, literally. Uh, because I don't want to even entertain the idea of possibility, because why should I get excited about doing something that will improve things when I know nothing will make any difference anyway, and all I'll do is get all my hopes up, and then they'll be dashed again, and I'm not going to go through that anymore. So there, you know. That sounds very much like the adolescent perspective. You got it. (laughs) (laughs) You got it, exactly. And so I wonder about the, the concept of the idealist, um, versus the realist. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't require ideal. The uh, the typical what we think of as an idealist, because most of us, when we say idealist, we think of somebody that's got their head in the clouds. They're not grounded at all. Uh huh. But there is a, a tremendous value for having certain values and for having certain ideals to, to shoot for, even if they if even if they don't accomplish, you don't accomplish the specific ideal you're going for. At least uh-huh. you raise you you raise the output. You raise the throughput. Huh. And leadership to me is leadership to me is going to have to come from people. It's going to have to come from people, whether they're given leadership titles or not, but through the general ranks. And I've seen people that have made big changes, and we've seen people get Nobel prizes and be awarded all kinds of and accomplish huge things in the world, who are quote just ordinary people doing something that they felt really moved to do, mm. and that's what it's going to take enough people to see that the, the things need to change. I, I guarantee you, on a one-on-one basis, everybody I talk to knows things have to change. Hmm. You put them in a group to, of the, with their peers, they won't be quite so vocal. They'll be a little more cowardly. Why is this? Um, I, I, I'm not sh- I have some ideas, but I'm not a shrink. <laughs> so I, I just have some ideas about it. 
But I, what I do know is I can observe it. It goes on. Mm-hmm. People don't want to be seen as having those kinds of ideals or uh, having anything that will jeopardize their image with their peers. But on a one-on-one basis, with and they, if most people feel pretty safe talking to me one-on-one, they almost always, to a person, will say yes. They see all the, all the need for change. And then you ask them why they aren't doing it. For instance, and and I finally got some validation for this. Uh, a pair of consultants, Gary Heil and David Kyle, mm-hmm. no relationship, um, came to me last year with the idea of doing a book, and they had done some research, and they had. Re- interviewed 450 leaders and managers in companies. And they asked them who the, what leaders they admired and what traits in those leaders did they admire and wish to have themselves. In other words, what traits do they aspire to have as a leader themselves? They, uh, they basically named pretty much the same people, people throughout history and, and currently, uh, you know, Mother Teresa, Winston Churchill, you know, the usual suspects. <laughs> and the traits that those people uh, demonstrated, at least as far as these people knew, were things like, you know, being willing to risk and, and uh, courage and um, truth-telling and, you know, all the usual traits that you'd, you'd normally associate with great leaders. Sure. The interesting revelation was, they said, are, where are you relative to these aspirations? And every one of them, gave themselves a failing grade. Really? They all knew, and the bottom line of it is this. People know how to lead. We don't need any more leadership books. We don't need any more leadership workshops. We don't need any more leadership trainings. We probably don't even need any more leadership radio shows. Mm -hmm. People know how to lead. What's missing is their will to do it. And so how do we get into that? How do we dig into that uh, will to do? I mean, when I think about what you're saying and I think about the psychological perspective, let's just take one that most people are familiar with, which is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And, you know, at the base is the the physiological need, food, shelter. You need to know um, you're safe and secure. Well, I I stop right there and I think, oh, great, our, our culture does not feel safe and secure. Right. And hasn't for, you know, several years. And our government tends to stir that pot a lot. And so if what we need to be doing is on the higher level of those of that that triangle of the higher pyramid of hierarchy of needs, um, I wonder how we can get there when our culture is so stuck in fear. We we are living in a culture of fear, and unfortunately, we've spread it around around so, the world. Around the world, yeah. So I think the the world, and it's a very, I wouldn't call it subtle, but it's in, it's so insidious that a lot of people don't even realize it. You know, the old parable of the boiled frog. Yes. We've been yes. in it so long, we don't even know we're in it. Yes. And there's a, a reluctance to feel fear because that's one of those bad feelings, right? It's a so, human feeling, but it's it's a bad feeling, and. In writing my new book, the one I'm working on now, one of the bits of research I was doing is where, from what time on have we, has the United States had this sense of a culture of fear? And what I was very surprised to learn is that we have basically had an enemy even before we were founded. We started off with an enemy, the British. Right, right. And then we had another enemy, which was the the Indians, or the right. you know, then the French. And we have had an enemy almost all the time, nonstop. And when the Cold War ended in '91, it looked like for the first time in history we would have no enemies. Mm. The Soviet Union was dismantled. Communism took a, a pretty good big blow. Looked like a victory for America and democracy and liberty although it was more of a failure of the Soviet Union than a victory for right, us. Right, right. And there was a an underwriting memo that, that actually, you might say, even started the Cold War. It was written in 1950, I think. And the memo was, the, the person that drafted the memo actually was instructed 
to scare the hell out of Truman with this memo. And that, that marked our official foreign policy with that, with that document, which, which basically painted the Soviet Union as a big threat to us. And it was, it was to some degree, fictionalized. So we, we, built, we made them an enemy. They made them an enemy. We both got mileage out of it. Both countries got mileage out of it. But that, then they became our enemy. Right. And then when, when the Soviet Union broke up in 91, we had no national enemies. And within 10 years, we end up with being attacked by terrorists. Now we have a terrorist enemy, an invisible enemy, so to speak. Right, right. So there's this, it's almost like this culture of fear needs to be reinforced. And, and it's, it's, it, it, I have to say, I'm, I'm, I have no idea why this is going on, but we, we simply seem to be used to having a level of fear in our culture and have had it since our founding for 240 years. Well, and it seems to be at an all-time high, and I want to talk a little bit about how that actually serves as a very convenient excuse for us to do nothing. We'll be right back with John Renich. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Are you ready to become a global citizen of the world? What would it be like to share your future with people of all ages from around the world who have one major thing in common? A commitment to make a difference with no language, religion, or age barriers. Make a difference in this world. Come to Bali this summer for an experience of a lifetime. Awakening Global Action, a seven-day gathering that will change your world. Call 866-458-2254 or visit our website at www.baliinstitute.org. You are the leaders the world has been waiting for. Call today. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Listen wherever you are. 24-hour business and financial news. Solid, focused, and informed. The leader in business talk. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And we're speaking with John Rennish today, futurist and author of Getting to a Better Future, A Matter of Choice. John, we were just speaking about the culture of fear. I am curious about how this whole concept of fear that we are living in, that we have created in our culture, has become a convenient excuse for us not to take a stand, for us as individuals. And I know for me, uh, I experienced some of that myself. You know, it's my life is good. It's um, pretty easy. And when I think about walking out into the street and protesting what I think is wrong going on in our government or in our world, I think, well, maybe not, um, because, you know, I'm not so sure that life would continue to be so easy for me. Um, you know, what do you think about this? You know, how we are actually um, not collaborating, but, you know, we're buying into this. And it's we're complicit. Convenient. Right, exactly. And part of, part of the way we try to avoid feeling that complicity is we bash 
the White House or we bash our elected officials or there's a finger to point, somebody to point to. Right. But the, the, the truth is that we've allowed all this to happen during our watch. Mm. And while fear is the underlying context for most of us, I think there's also an addiction aspect to it. That we're, there's there's a obsessive attachment to life being easy and convenient, yeah, and having everything the way we've wanted it, right. And it isn't perfect. It isn't. We're not as happy as we'd like to be, but it's pretty damn good. And look at it, how other people are doing it. So we'll just we'll just sit here fat and happy and sassy mm-hmm. and watch our TV mm-hmm. and numb ourselves out when it comes to anything that's really painful or unpleasant. So there's an addictive aspect to that. I'm going doing all covering all this in my new book, but there's yeah. an addictive quality. Uh, so we work ourselves over, over, overly work. We overly drink. We over take medica- prescription medications. We over numb ourselves, and that's a way of saying, staying fat and happy, basically. Mm-hmm. And for Americans in particular, uh, convenience and ease. In one, it's, it's kind of paradoxical because on one hand, we work more than probably any other country. We spend more time being busy than any other country in the right. world. Right. And yet at the same time, we seem to be almost addicted to having a life of ease and empty calories like celebrities and mm. reality talk shows right, and right, right. You know, gossip about people that are just celebrities. That's all they do. They don't even have any talent. They're just celebrities. Right. That, that is such a such a waste of consciousness and waste of our attention. Right. And there's only so much attention we have. So if we keep, you know, our attention full of a lot of stuff that doesn't matter much, we don't have to deal with the stuff that really does matter. Interesting. So I, I see it as a crisis in the American citizen. I don't see it as a crisis in Washington. I don't see it as a crisis in politics. I don't even see it as a crisis in in the business world. I see it as a crisis in the citizenship, how we're holding being a citizen in the world, how we're being a citizen of the United States, and how we're holding ourselves as citizens in the world. Well, and I wonder then what it is we have to do. What do do I have to do? Do I have to say, um, okay, I'm not going to accept this anymore. I personally am going to... um, tell the government what I think. I'm personally going to go out in the world and um, do I have to be Mother Teresa to make change happen? Yeah, I think that, you know, in some ways we, we do this. You know, we, we take everything to such a huge level because of that belief, I can't make anything happen. I can't make change happen. I can't influence a big, con- you know, big corporation. So what is it that I can do on a daily basis? Well, this is this is where I, I, get, I might be getting a little bit um, prescriptive. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that all of us, if we allow ourselves, have a passion within us to do something. I don't mean to do something to, to help the world. I mean do something that's us, that has our, mm-hmm. our stamp on it. Uh-huh. Something uniquely to contribute to the world. Mm-hmm. Something uniquely to do in the world. Mm-hmm. I believe that lies within all of us. Now, many people are not in touch with that. A few of us are, and we're very fortunate. And when people say, what can I do? They're, you know, they're almost asking, like, give me an assignment. Right, right, right. <laughs> and the assignment is already in there. Hmm. It, as far as I can see, the people that are really effective, um, that are really good at what they do and really successful, are people that have passions within them hmm. and act on those passions. They don't let the outside world steer them off their passions. They don't do something for the money. They don't do something. They may get rich, but they're getting rich doing something that they just feel passionate about. And when people ask me, well, I don't know what my passions are, because we have numbed ourselves out pretty much. Right. So how are you going to find a passion amongst all the numbness? So what I will coach them to do is if you can't, if you are not, if you're literally out of touch with any kind of passion within you that wants to be animated in the world, Look for what really ticks you off. What ticks you off? What really pisses you off. <laughs> because at, at least you've got some juice there. Oh, interesting. And then maybe do something about what really pisses you off. Uh-huh, uh-huh. 
but do something that engages your heart and engages your pat you passionately. Well, you've made you've met many leaders of corporations and large organizations and NGOs around the world, and I'm wondering. I can imagine that these people are not always working in their place of passion. Do you see that? I'd say most of them are most of the time. It's, it's, it would be idealism for sure to say that 100% of the time they're acting with all their passion all the right. time. But if they're, op- if they're operating in what they... For instance, let me give you an example from my life. Okay. I love to write. Mm-hmm. I love writing. It is a passion of mine. I, I write, I, I mentioned this to a, a publisher friend of mine the other day. I said, I write, I, I feel like I have to be milked like a cow. You know, <laughs> Every day or so I have to write something. So it's a passion of mine. Within that passion of mine, writing, for instance, in writing a book, which I'm doing now, I am at a stage in the writing of the book that is not as passionate, I'm not as passionately engaged. In fact, I got to procrastinating about it because it's coming to all the, quote, fun stuff that I put in here <laughs> is already in, and now it's a question of all those notes I made saying, I'll do this later, I'll do this later, I'll do this later, that I didn't want to do then. Uh-huh. Well, now it's time. So all the little notes of doing this later and checking this reference and all that kind of, now it's time for all that to happen. Well, that's not nearly as much fun. But it's still within the passion I have for writing, and, and particularly in writing this one book, because this is the most important book I think I've ever written. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's within the passion, there are chores to do that may not you know, light you up. But if the, if the track that you see, you know, the, the, tr- the track that you're running on is still going where you, where you have the passion for, mm-hmm. hey, you're, you're so much better off than people that don't, are just doing something because it brings in a paycheck. Right. Well, I know that in our society there are many jobs or many things people can do that um, pay the you know pay the bills, as they say, mm-hmm. um, but don't necessarily touch something that they're very connected to. And so we have a bunch of people in our society who are doing work and, and probably doing a good job, um, but they don't get, as you say, lit up by this. And so they go, they do their work, and they leave, and they have. They're so disconnected from what they do, you know, for many hours in the day. And um, in your book, you talk about um, having moved from a um, business of enterprise, I think I've got that right, um, into simply the corporate profit monger, mongering, um, and essentially taking the personal side out of business. Now, because corporations are so big, because the focus is on making profits and stock markets, etc., making somebody wealthy, um, I'm wondering how we get our organizations to a place where it's an exciting place to be for people. You know, how do we do this? It's it's going to self-correct. The system will correct itself as more and more people come to realize that they're not getting their soul fed, they're not, they're not feeling juice for what they're doing, mm-hmm. and to the degree that they can liberate themselves from their addictions and their indebtedness and their overspending and so forth, most of the good people, uh, most of the creative, generative, awake people, people with their lights on, as I like to say, uh-huh. are going to leave corporations if the corporations are not serving their needs. If the corporations had become bureaucratic, dysfunctional, uh, full of politics and so forth, these people are going to leave. And eventually, in, you know, this may take centuries, mm-hmm. but eventually the corporations, those corporations that don't feed the souls of their employees or their workers are going to be left with people that are zo- walking, the living dead, so to the speak, the walking, zo- the spiritual zombies. And they're just there putting in their time like you, like you just described, maybe even being fairly competent at it, but they have no connection with it. There's no right. juice there. There's no soul. And those companies uh, have to, they are now attracting the least of, not the best, but the least, and at some point they're going to implode. Yeah, you know, I see that, and I, in 
some of the work I do in organizations and um, the halls of those organizations sometimes feel like walking tombs. Um, and it is, it's odd to me. It's an odd sensation. And I think about how that hits my body, that energy when it hits my body when I walk into the organization. And, you know, people are walking into that energy every day. And it can't help but affect their psyche. Sure. And it can't help but affect what they give back. And it will probably work. change, not from somebody coming in and taking over CEO and saying, geez, it feels like a morgue around here. Mm-hmm. That's very unlikely to change. Because that person didn't get to be CEO by doing that kind of thing. Well, right, exactly. But the individual that comes into that system and quits maybe their first week because <laughs> they yeah. can feel the toxicity. Right, right. They, they, are, they are clean. Mm-hmm. Or the individual that's been there for a while and has had some kind of an awakening experience and comes back to work and goes, I, I can't do this anymore. Right, right. I had an example. I was talking to a friend of mine in Zurich the other day, a woman I just met uh, last year. And she took a chance last year on putting up a product idea. She wasn't sure the company would go for it. She took, a, she stuck her neck out, and the company not only went for it, they backed her with $100 million for this, this fund she started. She's now, you know, kind of a rock star in the company. Hmm. Young, pretty mother of two. Wow. And now that she's up in the upper ranks, she's running into politics. Uh. And she's telling me, you know, she's, she's not going to be there very long. And it's just so typical. You know, here you've got somebody who, who had the guts, had the courage to do something innovative, to bring something to light that would be on the leading edge for this company in, the, in, in its work. And she advances to a point and then runs into what I call bullshit. And now is saying, I don't, I don't, I don't want to fight this anymore. I'm not going to do this anymore. Right. So they've lost her. I mean, spiritually, they've lost her. Right. She's still working there, but they she'll be gone in probably within a year. Right. Yeah, that's, that's really too bad. That is too bad. That is. Um, but that story goes on millions of times all around yeah, the world. It really is. We have more to talk about with John Rennan. She'll be right back. More and more people are starting their day with informative, focused business talk. Top experts. Today's business issues. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Are you ready to become a global citizen of the world? What would it be like to share your future with people of all ages from around the world who have one major thing in common? A commitment to make a difference with no language, religion, or age barriers. Make a difference in this world. Come to Bali this summer for an experience of a lifetime. Awakening Global Action, a seven-day gathering that will change your world. Call 866-458-2254 or visit our website at www.baliinstitute.org. You are the leaders the world has been waiting for. Call today. Mr. Simplicity, Bill Jensen, is on a mission to make it easier for you to get stuff done. He wants you to do less stupid stuff so you can do more of what matters. He'll coach you as a speaker at your event or one-on-one. He'll help you by consulting side-by-side with your teams, and he'll teach you through his books and downloads from his website. Visit today at www.simplerwork.com, and he welcomes your emails at bill at simplerwork.com. Smarter, not harder, is your work and your life, condensed and clarified. Mr. Simplicity is on a mission to make it easier for you to get stuff done. He'll give you the tools you need to do less stupid stuff and do more of what really matters. Let's succeed together. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Business information you need from the stock market to starting and managing your business. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. 
and we're speaking this morning with John Renage. John, you were saying that we need to be looking for leadership from ourselves and not from our leaders. And um, I would like to really have, now isn't this interesting, I want leadership on how to be a leader in myself. Um, you know, I want somebody to tell me how to do that. Um, and and you, demonst- you demonstrated by your example of the woman in Zurich who, you know, had been given a lot of support, said basically been told to run with this, this is great. And then when she got into that place where she was taking her leadership stand, um, she started getting squelched. And so I think that that is really a lot of what people have experienced or are afraid of experiencing. And so building that capacity in people to stand their ground or to feel, um, deal with the conflict or push back when it comes to them is something we really have to work on. And I'm wondering how we make that happen. If we don't do it in school and we don't do it in workshops and we don't do it through books and radio shows, how do we do it? Well, when you ask how do we do it, are you talking about us helping them? Or are you no, talking about how no. do I do it? No, how do I do it? Okay. It's more of the how do Well, the there's been a motto around for a couple of generations. It's just three words that Nike's been using. Just it works pretty it. good. You know, <laughs> Just do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what seems to happen, and this isn't the anatomy of every man or every woman, but it seems to happen, is people get to a certain level of positions because... They are asserting, assertive. Mm-hmm. They lead the way. They're seen as a leader. And then they get accepted into the, the, click, the click of leadership, so to speak. And then they start feeling like they have to act political because now it's become a game of politics. This woman wasn't feeling squelched, by the way. Oh. She was bumping into politics. Okay. Where instead of her energies going 90 or 80% to her work... Right. She was spending a higher proportion of time dealing with this, what she called politics, I call bullshit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, it's when the individual stops playing it safe. Mm. This, this is what, in that survey I told you that, that right. Gary and David did. Right, right. The, when they really inquired about these guys, what they, what, if they had all these aspirations, they admired these people, and they aspired to do this and this and this, and there's this huge gap between what they aspired to uh-huh. and what they were doing. Why were they doing that to themselves? Mm-hmm. What, what, what blueprint were they following, if not right. the, those the people they admired? And, they, and by the time they analyzed it, they basically came down to saying they were all conforming to what the system wanted them, wanted from them. Now, what that translates to is they are all conforming to what they thought the system wanted from them. So they start making up things and then complying to that, which is don't make waves, stay under the radar, be a good little boy, good little girl, all those things that, that did not get them into the roles of leadership. Now, that's interesting. Cause that's and it's that culture of fear again. It's that fear of getting their vote canceled, or maybe they get to a certain level of income and, and, and spending, right. and they're afraid to jeopardize that. They have more to lose. So they yeah. built their own jail cell. Right, right. So when we but, recognize that we are building our own jail cells, nobody's doing it to us, mm-hmm. and that we're the ones that put the key in, turn the lock, and throw the key outside the door, Right. and the rest of our life is spent decorating this jail cell to make it look as nice <laughs> as we can. Oh, I. I'm not even going to respond to that one. <laughs> I have all kinds of images around that. Um, but the what I like about what you said is, um, you know, stop playing it safe. And what people do, what they thought the system wanted from them. So it becomes a story that they live in and that they continue to tell and build. And it may on. not even be true. Right, right, right. But for instance, the, the call I had a year and a half ago with this woman in Switzerland she was sharing how she was nervous and afraid to present this to her company. And I, just, I said something to her. It changed her life. She told me that later. She says, that changed my life. I said, you know, you're afraid. You're, what you're afraid of is they're going to, you know, boo you. You're going to lose credibility with them. You won't get fired, but you probably may not get as promoted as quickly as you'd like. Because she's on a career track. You know, she's yeah, a young woman. Yeah. And I said, you might be really surprised that when you 
put something up there, something as somewhat revolutionary, not revolutionary in, in terms you and I would use, but in, in her company it would be considered revolutionary. Sure. You might find a whole lot of people who are sitting around going, oh, I'm so glad somebody finally said that, or somebody finally is proposing this. You might find a lot of agreement. Right, right, right. And that somehow did something for her. She went ahead and did propose it, mm-hmm. and she was greeted that way. Mm-hmm. She was greeted as a hero rather than as uh, rather than being um, ridiculed. Right. And this is where I, I think that the power of coaching and mentoring is so important because there is typically someone who believes in you who says, you know what, you know, the worst thing could, that can happen is. And so it, it gives people the opportunity to step out of their story for a moment mm-hmm. and to imagine possibilities. And that's what you do, John, with your book, uh, Getting to the Better Future, A Matter of Conscious Choosing. You help us look at possibilities. And also you really put the challenge out. And the challenge is to be willing to think differently, to be willing to see the world differently, and to see ourselves differently, and to just do it, as you said, just do it. And I really appreciate that. I think my new mantra um, that I'm going to pass along to my clients, and um, it's one that I've lived by for a very long time, and I noticed that I have um, stepped in and out of it at various points in my life, but I'm going to remind myself of it a lot, which is, Stop playing safe. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a very powerful statement. So I so appreciate you being here, John. Can I give Coming. a quote just to wrap it up? Please, please. Howard, Howard Thurman, a new, a, new, um, a new inspiration for me in the last few years. Uh-huh. Howard Thurman wrote this a uh, long time ago, and it's always been a favorite quote of mine since I, I first heard it. It is, don't look for what the world needs. Mm. Look for what makes you come alive and do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. That's wonderful. It's a perfect way to close this morning. John Rennish, what is your website? www.rennish.com, R-E-N-E-S-C-H.com. You can learn more about John's work and learn more about how you can tap his brilliance and have him um, do a wonderful keynote or more books and writings that he has done at Rinage.com. John, thank you so much for being here. Um, can't wait to see your next book. You're going to have to come back and tell us about it. I'll be glad to, Cheryl. Thank you. Wonderful. Remember, everybody, think big. The world could become a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week.